I'm Executive Director and Senior Fellow in the Global Health Policy Center, and I'm pleased to welcome you here. Thank you so much to those of you who trekked in the rain, uh, and thank you to everyone watching via webcast. I'd like to start by thanking my colleague Maggie McCartan-Gibbs for her work in organizing today's event, and uh, to Vive Healthcare for their sponsorship. Our Global Health Policy Center HIV activities over the next year are focused on the challenges and opportunities for the next phase of the HIV response from 2020 onward, past the initial milestone of the fast track goals. Through a series of events, multimedia products, and policy papers, we are looking at issues that need to be addressed or accelerated over the next year before the initial milestone at the end of 2020. We're also looking at critical policy issues affecting program implementation and what needs to be part of a strategic direction for the global response post-2020. As part of this effort, we recently launched a report at the beginning of October on issues associated with the aging population of people living with HIV. We will host a public conference in early February on the critical ingredients that need to be part of the strategic direction post-2020. And in addition, we'll be highlighting some of the persistent threats to long-term sustainability and control in a new documentary that we will launch at that conference in February. We'll also continue to track the domestic HIV response and look for opportunities to utilize the platform of the AIDS 2020 conference for both global and domestic efforts. Our discussion today on enabling access to innovative HIV technology fits squarely within this strategic framework of tackling challenges and opportunities through 2020 and beyond. Fueled by scientific advances and global political and financial will, we are at the best place that we have been since the start of the HIV pandemic in the early 1980s. More than 23 million people are on antiretroviral treatment, and treatment regimens today are easier to use and less toxic, with more options to fit the individual needs of patients. We also have the best arsenal of prevention tools that we've ever had, with oral pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, providing a discrete, user-friendly method that had otherwise been missing for decades. As we'll discuss today, there's more on the way, long-acting regimens, injectables, implants, and multi-purpose technologies. But just because we have those approaches and tools available doesn't mean they're accessible to those who need them the most. As we outline in our new primer on HIV prevention technology released yesterday, a variety of structural barriers have stymied new tools as they've come to market, including inadequate financing, regulatory and guideline obstacles, and inefficient delivery of health services. For example, approximately 340,000 people are on oral PrEP worldwide, far short of the 3 million target set in the fast track goals. As a result, we're stuck. Despite early declines, the annual number of new infections has hovered at or just below 2 million for most of the last decade. And that's obviously nowhere near the 2020 fast track milestone target of less than 500,000 new infections annually. Dramatically reducing infections is essential to bringing the HIV pandemic under control, but it will require both ensuring innovative prevention technology reaches those who need it and the political and financial will to make prevention a global priority. There is a need to address critical implementation challenges for treatment and prevention tools that will help us get back on track, as well as an opportunity to fix those issues with a number of novel tools in development. Today we are fortunate to have with us four experts who come from different vantage points 
from research and development to policy and program design to advocacy and implementation, and bringing varying perspectives on what it takes to bring innovative tools to the end user. We'll start with a fireside chat with Deborah Waterhouse, CEO of Vive Healthcare, which has been an innovator in advancing treatment and prevention technology. Deborah has been in her role for nearly two and a half years and brings to her position tremendous expertise in primary care and vaccines. Deborah will be joined by uh, Jay Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And following their chat, I will be joined by Ambassador Deborah Burks of PEPFAR, Charles Lyons of the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, and Mitchell Warren of AVAC for a panel discussion on their perspectives on innovation in the HIV response and how to overcome critical hurdles. And then Deborah Waterhouse will rejoin us for the end of the panel and our audience Q&A. So with that, let me introduce uh, Deborah Waterhouse and uh, Steve Morrison to start our fireside chat. Welcome. Thank you. I thought we might start by talking about the Washington Nationals, but maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can take that up a little later. A little later. Um, so welcome. It's wonderful to have you back with us. Uh, and a special thanks to Sarah and Maggie, and congratulations on the publication of this very impressive piece of work that I think you'll all find very useful. Special thanks to Vive, to our colleagues, uh, Shira Kilcoyne, Helen McDowell, Lynn Baxter, and others who are with us today, and congratulations to Vive at its 10-year mark. Thank you. Um, we'll talk a bit about that today. I had the great fortune in July of speaking with Deborah on camera in Mexico City as part of this documentary that we're making. And um, uh, this is an effort in which we've uh, interviewed over two dozen leading figures, including Deborah, uh, in the global fight against HIV. And the central concern has been about sustaining progress. Um, and where is it going to come from? And we'll be talking about this this afternoon. There's a certain fragility that we see at the moment. Um, there's a lot of hope, but there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, and that's something that, um, that cuts across almost every conversation in this field today. And we, in the film, we start at the early plague years. We move into the, the, the era of magic and innovation, the, the creation of ARTs, the creation of the new financing capacities, PEPFAR Global Fund. We carry it forward to where we are today in terms of a, a period where there's a call for a new strategy and there's a call for Admitting, admitting some of the vulnerabilities that we have, and also to see where we find hope, where we find the greatest hope. And we had a chance to touch on some of these. We talked about Dalia Tegravir. Uh, we talked about the, the evolution of that, and we'll talk, come back to that in a moment. We talked about the promise of an injectable version, bringing that to market, and we'll cover that as well. We talked about the president's new program to end HIV here in the United States. I hope we can touch on that. And we talked about the Global Fund, at that moment in time, of course, we weren't where we are today. And today, congratulations uh, that, we've, that the fund reached that point. But I think credit is due to, to V for playing a, a big role, really, in advocating and helping move uh, the UK government and others forward on that. The corporate partners played a critical role in that, pro uh, in that, uh, in that process. And congratulations are due all around. We close in that early 
conversation back in July with a question around where do you find the greatest hope? And your answer was a definitive and categorical science. Um, and it's remarkable how often we hear that from the leaders in this field across the spectrum of different interests. So we're going to have a conversation here. Today we'll cover a number of different topics. I want to start with the 10th anniversary. And again, congratulations. And I'd like you to, as you look back, give us in a, in a kind of capsule form for a non-technical audience that's going, who's Vive and what did they contribute in this last 10 years? This has been a period of enormous gains, uh, particularly with respect to HIV treatment and prevention. And what have been the signal, signal contributions, in your view, from Vive? So if I go back a little bit in history, um, we are a company that's owned by um, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, and Shinogi, three pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And actually, the majority shareholder is GSK, and the first medicine ever discovered to treat HIV was AZT all those right. years ago in, yeah. in uh, 1988. And at that point, the life expectancy of someone living with HIV was about 18 months. So if you fast forward through 3TC and Combivir and many other uh, medicines to really when Vive started, um, we started with a great hope for the future. We started with some medicines in our hand that were um, already approved for use. And we started off with a dream for this product that we had called Dolotegravir, which had incredible um, early phase data and that we could see held this amazing opportunity if it ended up being as good as it looked like in the early phases. And so we continued to study that medicine through uh, phase two and phase three. And we made a decision pretty early on that if this really was the special medicine that we thought, in every clinical study we did, we had to make sure that we had broad rep representation because this had to be a medicine for everybody, not just for... Um, you know, for men who have sex with men, but actually it had to be for women, it had to be for children, it had to be for everybody, uh, including all, um, you know, uh, ethnic minorities as well. So we studied it broad and we did lots and lots of different studies, more than you needed to. And what happened was that the medicine ended up being as good as we had hoped it would. And as a result, it changed the treatment paradigm where you saw now uh, integrases becoming the backbone of, um, of treatment, obviously at the core of treatment, you add then a backbone on whichever one you, you choose. And really what Dolotegravir has done is it's made a massive difference to um, how people living with HIV are, are able to tolerate their medicine. And it's also made a massive difference in terms of um, the, the quality of life that, that people have due to the side effect profile. So that is exciting, and we've got five studies against all the different medicines in the marketplace we, which we've shown dolotegravir to be superior on. So we did all of that work, and then we said, but this isn't good enough, because actually it's not good enough for dolotegravir only to be available in the developed world. And the way we work our model, just so, so you understand, is in the developed world, we strike a deal with governments and payers at a price that they're willing to pay for our medicines. In middle-income countries, we tend to strike a deal which is based upon high volume, low per unit cost, so that mm -hmm. access is there in middle-income countries. And then in the developing world, we um, issue voluntary f um, licenses to 
um, generics manufacturers, and we work very hard with those generics manufacturers to make sure that as fast as is humanly possible, our medicines are available to the developing world um, in the same way as in the developed world and middle-income countries. And so for me, a lot of the energy was not just showing Dolotarivir was a great medicine for a broad population, but actually that, that uh, the person that was living with HIV in Kinshasa had the same access as the person that was living in New York. That was really important to us. And so where, where we've been working very hard for the last few years is to make sure that um, the numbers of people taking Dolotegravir increased in line with the recommendations in the guidelines. And it was really interesting. We had a big celebration at the end of um, 2018 because Dolotegravir reached 4 million of the 37 million people living with HIV in the world. What is incredible through our partnership with people uh, like PEPFAR and um, EGPAF and all the others, today we just got the new data through on Friday. 5.9 million people are now mm -hmm. on dolotegravir. So in 10 months, you've seen a 2 million increase. And, and that increase is not coming from the US or Europe because you're, you're, you don't have the growth in those markets. There's, those markets aren't where the opportunity to support human health is. It's actually in the developing world where in the main TLD, so tenofovir, lamivudine, and dolotegravir in a single tablet is now rolling out across all of those markets and making an incredible difference. So to me, that is 10 years of hard, excellent work. And I'm very proud of where we've got to. Proud, but not satisfied. Well, congratulations. So what were the, I'm sure along the way, there were many lessons, some inspiring and some very sobering. What were the sobering lessons in this last 10-year period, in your view? We didn't go fast enough. It, it, it's, really, it's really hard. And again, the panel will talk more about this. It's really hard to go fast, even if you put all your effort into it. And what I mean is access, actually. The, so the, what slowed the you down? So what slowed us down was um, the fact that once you've got regulatory approval in Europe and the US, you then try your best to gain regulatory approval in the markets where um, you want the medicine to be available to those who have the greatest need. And that process is like been wading through treacle at times. What's happened is, and this is Can you say that phrase again? Like wading through treacle, that's a very British That's a very thing. good, that's, that's a very, very good British, phrase. Wading through treacle. What we've done, what the highlight of, of the last 10 years is, is that actually we've discovered that through any, no matter how intractable a problem looks, partnership is the key to success. So mm -hmm. what we did was we worked with the WHO to work out how we could get a quicker and, uh, and easier path for HIV medicines to move from kind of what's called the stringent regulatory authorities into um, other parts of the world. So WHO have been amazingly supportive with that. And then in terms of generic partners, again, we've had some different ways of working, some different kind of speedy milestones that we've agreed on, and all of that has sped things up. So in the beginning, it was very slow. Now, actually, I think we've learned to make it much faster and we'll talk about this later, but I think the paediatric um, opportunity that we have in terms of rolling out paediatric dolotegravir in the developing world is, is a place where we'll deploy all of the lessons to make sure that that is as fast as possible. So why haven't we been faster on paediatrics? Is it the reason you just outlined, or is there something peculiar to paediatrics? Paediatrics is peculiar because it's very, very complicated to run clinical studies in children. The, the, if in older adolescents, 12 plus, it's not difficult. Six to 12 is quite difficult. 
and 0 to 12, particularly in the youngest kids. It's very, very difficult and very complicated. Um, and then the second part is that because it's a small and fragmented population, even though we are willing to give our licenses voluntarily to the generics manufacturers, actually the market's so small, it's difficult for them to, um, you know, to make any money in that marketplace. So this sort of, even when we manage to prepare the baton and, and go to pass it on, there's not always somebody that wants to take hold of it. Um, and that is why it's been slow. However, we had a breakthrough moment about two years ago where we all came together, everybody that's involved in, in pediatrics from Vive to um, Gilead, PEPFAR, WHO, UNICEF, like it was the who's who and we were called together by no other person than the Pope to come and try and sort this out. When I got the email actually with the invitation on this paper piece of paper, I thought it was a phishing email because I couldn't quite believe that any that, that I would get this. thought your staff were pranking you? I, no, I thought it was one of those things where you pressed on a link and, and they kind of removed all of the data off your computer. So I pressed the button to send it to the IT department as a phishing email and they sent me this note back and said, no, this is genuine. So <laughs> that was very exciting. But actually what happened was, after I'd kind of delayed longer than I should have done in responding, of course, <laughs> said, I will definitely come to the Vatican. And we had this incredible coming together of everyone that was passionate about solving this issue. And actually what we've done is we now have a plan where we're going to be uh, submitting on the 12th of December. My team hate me when I give a specific date, but let's say the 12th of December we'll submit a file for a dispersible dolotegravir, five milligram, which dropped in water and can easily be taken by very, very young children. And we have uh, support from Chai and other groups, PEPFAR et al, making sure that we have kind of a guaranteed demand model, which means the generics will then be willing to make the product. And we are going to have a very, very fast rollout of this product. So I'm super excited about that. I won't make one dollar off it. This isn't about money. This is about human health and living up to our mission of leaving yeah. no person living with HIV behind. So I'm super excited about that. Now, you came to the helm of Vive two and a half years ago. Um, having had your career centered in other parts of GSK's business. So this was, you came into this world. What surprised you? So actually, I spent the first part of my career at GSK in HIV. I kind of consider the other things that I did as a little diversion okay. before I came back to where I belonged. But, but were you surprised when you re-entered? I was surprised when I re-entered by a number of things, some of which delighted me and some of which scared me a bit, actually. So... When I came back into HIV, I was obviously delighted by the progress that had been made in terms of life expectancy, in terms of access. Actually, we'd made quite a lot of progress. So I was really, really happy about that. And obviously, I've always been deeply entrenched in the science. So the science was also amazing. And, you know, there is potentially in the future a cure, which I'm super excited about. Mm -hmm. What made me sad was some of the same old problems were still there. Stigma. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure stigma's diminished since I spent the first half of my career working in HIV. It's still a massive issue. HIV still affects minority populations, the poorest people in the world, women, adolescent girls. So some of the fundamentals haven't changed as much as I really hope that they would. Why is that, do you think? What's um, the durability of stigma? So I think the durability of stigma comes from 
the willingness of humanity to judge others. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing to overcome. Now, we've mm -hmm. seen some steps forward in other areas where there are a high level of stigma, <coughs> such as mental health, where in the past nobody would have discussed mental mm -hmm. health issues. It's now something that's much more you know, readily discussed, and I think that's fantastic. I think in HIV, we haven't, we haven't broken the back of that. We haven't challenged stigma. We're not able to you know, talk openly about the disease and the fact that if you're undetectable, it, you know, it, it, you equals you, you're, it, you're not able to transmit to others. I think people don't understand the disease, they don't understand that somebody living with HIV now lives as long as somebody that does not have HIV. So I think actually the stigma is keeping us silent and I think that's at the core of the issue that we have. Well, that's certainly what we're seeing in the, in the filming that we've been doing in both the s south of the United States and Memphis and Arkansas, yeah. transgender black women gay black men um, feeling marginalized and, and really uh, uh, disempowered, mm, yeah. adolescent and young women in KwaZulu-Natal, yeah. um, same thing. I mean, and, and even, getting, even engaging them to talk about their experience on camera raises risks for them. That was really quite a shock, I thought, to me, just that they would see talking openly about their own existence is a, is a risk, carries a risk because of what they see as this environment mm -hmm. that will punish them and, yeah. and their families mm -hmm. and their extended families. Let's talk about a little bit more about partnerships because, and what you've learned. Um, it's, a, it's a term that encompasses many different institutional players. It's one that's thrown around oftentimes without being all that concrete or specific, but we know that certainly um, in the work that you've undertaken and others like you, that gaining the trust, cooperation, and confidence of the key communities that matter is, is vitally important. And, and whether you're talking Southern and Eastern Africa or the United States or Eastern Europe or, or wherever, um, what have you learned about those particular partnerships? You make quite an investment in trying to build those up. What have you learned? Yeah, so we have um, sort of a, a wing of Vive, which I'd describe as almost being run like an NGO. So it's called the, the, the sort of the, the, the group called the Positive Action Team. Mm -hmm. And we currently fund about 600 community programs um, through a grant process. Um, sometimes we go it alone, so we will receive um, grant applications from small community groups who um, require funding and at other times we will add our money to other people's money, so yeah. the Pet Bar Dreams program or, or, or other programs. What I have learned is that top-down does not work. So actually we can never know what a community needs. What we always need to do is to listen to the community and in positive action it, it's, it's it's by the community for the community. So the grants mm -hmm. of a small grassroots organisations who can make a difference in their community, whether it's around um, stigma, tackling stigma, whether it's around diagnosis levels, whether it's around um, empowering um, women and adolescent girls to uh, be more in control of what happens to them, mm -hmm. um, whether it's about ensuring access to treatment. Actually, we fund 600 grants um, which basically are to those community organisations. And that makes a big difference, step by step by How step. How do you know if it's having the impact you want? 
So we have very clear um, kind of milestones that we set out uh, as we sort of agree yeah. to fund the grant. And actually, that's a, what we've been able to do is deploy some of the tactics that you use in running a business to actually making sure that where our investment goes, where funding goes in the partnership space, um, is in the right is in the right place yeah. so that can be in a small way in a group in Zambia who are empowering adolescent girls to actually stay in school and secure a job rather than mm -hmm. dropping out of school and then school and then being at risk of, of not such great things happening to them or it can be actually if I think about the pediatric journey we've been on where actually as a group we came together and set very clear milestones so the reason I said December the 12th was because we committed to that publicly yeah. and other people made their commitments and we meet every quarter to say how are we doing against the milestones that we set each other so instead of running a business or a uh, you know a, uh, a new medicine development program which looks like that some of that we've applied to um, you know how our programs run to make sure that they have the maximum yeah. effect but the key thing with positive action is it's by the community for the community. So, um, um, given the point you made a little earlier that um, we, we've been, we've all been surprised at the durability of stigma, and and stigma takes many different forms and many different contexts. Do we need to redouble our efforts focused on that with a very, a very elevated focus on stigma in the investments in communities or, or campaigns or are there other things we haven't done? where more needs to happen? I mean, I think it's a very, very stubborn issue. And I think a huge amount of investment has gone into it. Um, but I think we just need to continue to be aware that there is still quite a big issue out there. When I think about stigma in terms of the, the role that we could play, um, I'll give you an example. We have got a PrEP medicine in our pipeline, which is basically cabotegravir injected every eight weeks. Mm -hmm. um, to prevent people from becoming HIV um, infected. And so I think of that as, as an opportunity to offer people something that's discreet. So actually, rather than having to you know, protect yourself through having a bottle of Truvada, which you somehow hide in the place that you live, actually, if you were going to get your, um, you know, your, your contraception injection, you could actually have your PrEP injection yes. at the same time. So for me, there are ways where you can offer people discretion, and that is an example of us being able to do that. We've also mm -hmm. got a long-acting um, treatment um, that's going to be available as well, but I always think of the PrEP once uh, every eight-week injection as a very discreet way of allowing people to protect themselves without fear of you know, somebody finding the medication and either thinking that they're HIV positive already or using it in, in, a, you know, in a very... Uh, negative way. Yes. Well, thank you. You've, you've moved to the next topic that uh, we wanted to talk about, which is, in fact, uh, injectable form of PrEP, um, which is on the, you know, not far away, a major technological innovation. You've told us a little bit about why this is so important. Do you, and that it does fill a gap, um, do you feel like this is a, represents a game changer in your view? How do you characterize this? in terms of the upside of what this would mean? So I think, well, as, as Sarah said in the introduction, you know, the expectation would be that about 3 million people globally would be, should be on PrEP. And at yeah. the moment, I think we're at 300 and odd thousand. So you're right. probably at 12% penetration of where right. we should be. And to be honest, a vast majority of those people 
who are on PrEP are living in the US. So that's not tackling the developing world issue. Um, we've got two very, very large clinical studies that are going on. We've got a clinical study uh, in, in men who have sex with men and transgender women, over 4,000 people uh, uh, in that study. And then in the other study, it's a women's study. So we mm -hmm. decided to study in a very, very large group of women uh, the uh, every eight week inject injection of cabotegravir because we know that oral prep doesn't necessarily work as well in, in women as it does in men for a whole raft of reasons. So I think the game change, whether it's a game changer, does depend on what the data says. So the women's study is powered for superiority, so to show that it's actually superior to oral prep, and the men's study is powered for non-inferiority, although there is a superiority, you could show superiority if the data were strong enough. So I think for me, how much of a game changer it is does depend in part on what the data says, but let's say we do demonstrate superiority in women, non-inferiority in men, the, 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 the sort of the dialogue then needs to be in partnership with others, how do we make sure that there is access mm -hmm. to that once every yes. eight week? Uh, and that's before. an area where I imagine you could be a little nervous, right? I mean, the experience, as you pointed out, we're looking at 12% current coverage, predominantly in the United States, and there's been a number of barriers that have been experienced. As you look out at the experience up to now and you think about the introduction of an injectable what kind of, are you a little nervous and what kind of strategy do you need to pursue to get that access and to overcome some of the barriers that have been in the way up to now? So the, the one thing I'm absolutely certain of is we don't know everything that we need to know. So once we've got the clinical data that says actually we have um, a legitimate medicine and we will then mm -hmm. go ahead and file it in, in the FDA and the EMA so that others uh, can build off those licenses in the developing world, then what we need to do, I think, is some demonstration projects. So some, you know, as soon as we've got approval, then try and work out exactly how this would work. Um, and actually, even in um, kind of the developed countries where at the moment we're currently studying um, cabotegravir, ropivirine for treatment, we're actually doing some quite large demonstration studies, we mm -hmm. call them implementation studies, to show how are you going to get this medicine successfully to the people who need it. So I I'm just thinking in my head, well, we've done that in the US, we've got some studies we're going to be doing in Europe. I think we need some, some opportunities to test how best to implement this medicine yeah. as fast as we can so that when the generic manufacturers have got licenses and are ready to kind of supply the continent, that we've got knowledge that helps them successfully do so. So those experiments are ones that are going to look at what type of messaging, what type of interface does, does the population you're trying to reach, whether it's sex workers or men who have sex with men or highly vulnerable adolescent or girls and young women, that. Yeah that you're reaching them in the right way and the way that they're interfacing either traditional or non-traditional methods of reaching Correct. them are effective. That's Correct. really what you're... Correct. Along with the regulatory and the supply yeah. chain and all of those other that's systems issues. Yeah, that's the easy bit because that's what we almost do as a matter of course, even though obviously there's about 900 people at Vive who will now, when they watch this, kill me. But that is, that is the relatively straightforward bit. That's, that's the known part of the journey, but it's the unknown part that we need to learn and more about. Do you think the strategies have to be quite differentiated among those different key populations? My suspicion is to get to adolescent women and girls, it will be a different route to 
Um, Can you say a little more on that? So, so if you're, so let's say you are um, an adolescent girl or woman and you're, you're taking contraception. So actually you're already regularly interfacing with healthcare professionals in your country mm -hmm. to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're supported in your healthcare journey. You, you may become pregnant. Again, you'll be interfacing with healthcare professionals. So I think women will be accessed through, hopefully, um, a route which is similar to how they get their, their injected contraception. Men are going to be quite different because they interface with the healthcare system in a different way. And it's those two routes that I think could be quite different. But again, that's why we need to do the, um, the sort of the, the pilots, as it were. And we won't do the pilots on our own. Obviously, we'll be in, in, in you know, um, in partnership with uh, with others. But I think it could be it could be quite different. How soon do you expect to begin? That is a very under the. Question. I mean, I realize I don't want to put you on the spot, and I realize this is all a regulatory process. Yeah. Of, but what give us a sense of what would an optimal timeline look like? So the first thing is normally you do a clinical study, and you know that it's going to end on X date. But with the PrEP study, what we've agreed to do is to make it a very large study, and they're both event-driven studies. So the study doesn't stop until you've seen a difference between one arm and another, or you've reached a certain number of events, which means you can't say on X date the study will finish. So I would hope that we would have data in 2021, hope. But obviously that's linked to the number of events that happen, and, it, and an event is somebody becoming infected or not, as the case may be. So um, we will move as fast as we can once we've got the clinical data. Um, so hopefully then you'd be looking at a 2022 kind of license. Mm -hmm. And we want to move very fast after that to do the implementation work to understand how this would be executed um, you know, in, in the places where the, the need is the most. And then obviously we need to work with the generic manufacturers to issue our voluntary uh, licenses. So there's, there's a sort of a body of work that we need to do, but the pace of it and who is involved is, is, as, is as yet at the planning stage. Thank you. I'd like to um, close with a discussion around the International AIDS Conference. Um, yes. And thank you for participating in the podcast series that we have, uh, that Sarah and I and Andrew Schwartz have organized, uh, AIDS 2020, uh, San Francisco, Oakland which is turning out to be a, a really rich and, and enjoyable um, series. Um, tell us how you're looking at coming together in San Francisco and Oakland for the first time ever, two cities, yep. next July, early July, July 6th, 10. How are you looking at that? Well, actually, for us, it's a three-city um, endeavor because you've got the meeting in Mexico, yes. which is happening, which we're absolutely supporting for those who are mm -hmm. not able to come to, uh, or choose not to come to, to the US. And then we've got obviously the, um, the International AIDS Conference across San Francisco and Oakland. So um, what we'll be doing is, um, as we normally do, we will be sponsoring the Global Village. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to the International uh, AIDS Conference, but there is this incredible Global Village um, where different parts of the community, um, advocates all come together and create this, this sort of, I don't know, cacophony of support and joy and support and celebration, um, you know, around uh, the whole kind of HIV area. So we're sponsoring the Global Village. Um, 
Then we're also sponsoring some, um, some youth activities. So we're very keen to see the next generation of activists and those who are, who are young and operating in this space feel empowered to have their voice. Um, so we'll be there. And then obviously we'll be presenting clinical data as well. So that's what's happening in San Francisco and Oakland. And then we've also got some activities mm -hmm. that are happening at the same time in Mexico. So we're super excited. Um, What's the value of, in your mind? What's the value of these conferences? So the value of the conferences is, is one, it's, it's a place where new and cutting-edge scientific data will be presented. Um, at, at, at that particular meeting, you get the scientific data from you know, the, uh, the academic researchers and ourselves, but you also get a lot of um, kind of community-based research, um, implementation data. So it's quite a broad set of data that's presented, which is fas fascinating. Um, but it is also an opportunity for the voice of those uh, living with HIV or those who are representing those who are living with HIV to be heard. I mean, the media coverage is always huge. Um, there's always some demonstrations. There's always some quite overt activism. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. It'll be a very quiet time in our political cycle. Uh, It'll be about a week before the yes, Democratic convention and it is about five be weeks lively. before the Republican convention. You've got to stick around a little bit for yes, some of the exactly. other entertainment yeah. that will be unfolding. Yep. Um, it'll also be uh, an opportunity to check in on what's happening here domestically with the beginning of the implementation of the U.S. program under, you know, that was announced by President Trump Absolutely. at the his State of the Union address mm -hmm. back in February, becomes operational yeah. uh, in, uh, in January. Yeah. And uh, it'll be one of those moments where that can uh, be, be examined. Tell us a bit about what do you hope for in, in that program. You're going to, of course, be a very important yeah. part of that program. Yeah. So I think what we're aiming to achieve is the 90-90-90 goal that the kind of um, the world is aiming to achieve country by country. That 90-90-90 goal needs to happen in the US. And I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but the US is quite a long way off that 90-90-90 goal. I mean, as, as, as a global entity, we're not quite where we would want to be. So we wanted all countries to be at 90-90-90 by the time we got to 2020. We're probably not going to make that. But many countries have made phenomenal progress. So the first 90 So we're lagging. Yeah, well, hmm, yeah. Yes, quite a lot, actually. So on, on, if I can just say that, on the last 90, so on the diagnosis, you're aiming at 90%, a little bit behind. In terms of 90% treated, quite a bit behind. But in terms of... On the 90 of suppression, I think the US is at 52%, right, right. which is absolutely not where you would want to be. So for me, this real focus from you know, the US to get to the 1990-90 by 2030, to cut the number of new infections by 90%, that is absolutely imperative. Still 38,000 people new per year are diagnosed year. with HIV, yeah. and most of those infections are in minority communities. You know, so black men have sex with men, Latino men have sex with men, and then, you know, women, particularly women of colour. I mean, that to me doesn't feel right, and particularly in the southern states of the US. So that issue has to be tackled. It's not going to be easy, but it has to be tackled, and I, I applaud anyone. Now, you're in a, you're in a very unusual uh, position in that, you know, you know our system. You know our health system very, very well. I do. Uh, you've worked here and, and, and been, been engaged in... Uh, care delivery uh, here in the United States uh, for many years. And 
you know how fragmented and confusing things can be here. Say a few words about what are we going to need to do on the systems level to be able to be successful here in your view, given your knowledge and your experience with our health system. So given that the system is so incredibly fragmented and actually very different geographical area by geographical area, yeah. I sort of have a map in my head which says you, you and I think and I think this is the way it's going to be approached. You know, you need to go county by county and say, okay, so where where are the counties where we've got the biggest issue? And then in those counties, what is the root cause of the issue and how do we tackle it? Because a one size fits all I, I really don't think will make any difference. Right. And so you need to go into the kind of the, the, the southern state counties where you've got the biggest problems and then a few in the north and the east. Um, and you need a bespoke plan for each one because I think that's at a grassroots level how you tackle the issue and find that we do make progress. I think if there's some kind of big blanket approach, I'm not sure it will actually yeah. work. We had a uh, summit, and we have an annual summit in Atlanta each year. and We had the eighth year uh, about a week ago. And um, it was focused on cities and health. And we, we started the day uh, with a focus on, on the president's program and its application in and around Atlanta. So we had you know, John O'Merman from CDC come and do the big picture piece. We had the uh, chief health officer for Atlanta, newly appointed, uh, wonderful uh, Dr. Ferguson, come and speak about that. Uh, we had Tori Cooper, a transgender black female activist, uh, come and speak about her experience. We had um, Rashad Burgess from Gilead Sciences, who works on their South and West program. And a couple of the imp very strong impressions that came out of that, first of all, to your fragmentation issue, city of Atlanta really doesn't have a whole lot of control over the four counties that are the jurisdictions that are of the 48, four of those jurisdictions yeah. are those counties ringing, ringing Atlanta. I didn't fully understand the complications of, you know, uh, what, what sits on the desk of the uh, city health officer for, this, for Atlanta or the mayor mm -hmm. who wants to raise the visibility. Um, but the other, the opposing impression was people are giving this a fair shake. People are excited. Yep. They're l wanting to be listened to. They want to have voice. The outreach to the jurisdictions has been pretty fast. Yep. And the onus has been put back on the communities to begin preparing yep. their own plans. Yep. We're, and it's been very clear, I think it's been pretty clearly articulated what yep. you, your yep. point. Yep. There needs a plan for each jurisdiction and there needs, the community of interest has to come yep. together around yep. that. Yep. The key point that you make there is the community. You have to have the community involved in the sol solution for that community. You can't just decide that this is the solution that you're gonna land in that particular county or city or whatever. Has to be with the community. You won't. Our, our clinical studies are the same. We don't do clinical studies. We don't design them on our own. We don't decide this looks really good. We actually engage the community throughout. We need. We need to know what are the unmet medical needs. What are the you know the specific things that, that you know that, that you think would be helpful in the design of this clinical you know clinical trial. So we engage the community in just about everything we do, and that way we have a clear perspective as to how we need to serve and. You know, and, and if we get it wrong, then we are very happy to admit that. But even if we didn't admit it, the community would tell us anyway, and yeah. that's actually great. I mean, that, that's important. So I think it has to be with the community. 
I agree with you. And just to tie this back to AIDS 2020, I mean, the having the conference in Oakland and San Francisco is this tale of two cities, right? Yeah which is part of what we're talking about here. I mean, Oakland is part of the 48 jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. San Francisco's held up. I mean, it has lots of problems, yeah. uh, homelessness uh, being among them, uh, but nonetheless has had enormous achievement. Um, and so I think it's, it will be a good opportunity to, to visit these same issues that we're talking about right here in terms of what's the community plan, how are they being engaged, what's the, what's the interface. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Please join me in thanking. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of help. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve.
All right, mic's on, are we good? All right, we'll get started. All right, thank you for your patience. Um, thank you to our panelists uh, who are joining to follow up on the conversation we've started with Deborah Waterhouse today. I'm joined by three esteemed HIV experts who bring diverse points of view on the subject of HIV innovation and access. Uh, to my left, uh, we have Ambassador Deborah Burks, who has served as coordinator of the United States government activities uh, to combat HIV AIDS and US Special Representative for Global Health Diplomacy at the US Department of State since 2014. Uh, we have Charles Lyons to her left, who is president and CEO of the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, uh, where he's been in that position uh, since 2010. And finally, last but not least, Mitchell Warren, uh, who is executive director of AVAC uh, and has served in that role since 2004. Uh, so we're very excited to have as part of our panel uh, vast amounts of perspective uh, from the policy, program, uh, implementation, and advocacy sides of this equation. So thank you to all of you and welcome. Thank you. So I want to start with a question for all of you to begin with. First, what does innovation mean to you, and how do you see the role of innovation? Uh, what role have you seen innovation playing in the HIV response historically or presently? Okay, well, there. we look at two <laughs> sides of innovation. One of them is the scientific breakthroughs and the tools that have been given to us, and those have been extraordinary, both on the prevention side and the treatment side. But then it's what Deborah talked about, the community innovations, to really bring those to scale. And I think you know, it's always disconcerting to me, because um, I worked for Dr. Fauci before HIV, when he says, Debbie, you have all the tools you need. Now you just need to implement them, snap, snap. And I think you know, that, <laughs> that snap, snap is the second part of innovation. And that's the piece that is really grassroots, and we're seeing it. And then our job is to take it from there to hear, um, and we're never happy at the speed. I mean, at this t right now, we should have 13 million people on um, TLD. You know, we maybe have three um, or two and a half. Um, so I think you know that's constantly an issue for us. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I know you're going to ask us then probably what's holding us back. And there's two yes. sides of it. Mm -hmm. I think um, movement of policies fast enough mm -hmm. and policy translation to site and then ensuring that the community has a voice in that site translation. And I think in very bureaucratic mm -hmm. societies where pieces of paper move from here to here, they don't often take into account what you talked about county by county, community by community, country by country. Chip, your thoughts? Um, very much agree with the sort of two sides of innovation. The, and I, I know today we're talking a lot about tools and mm -hmm. technology and so on. but to Tony, Dr. Fauci's uh, point and Ambassador Burks's uh, point. Um, I live in this so-called snap-snap uh, <laughs> community and um, there are enormous challenges there in doing the snap-snap. Uh, um, none of us will succeed if we don't innovate. We're doomed to failure if we don't innovate. Um, and that's, I think, just been a history of the response to HIV and AIDS. So it's not, it's not new. There's, I, I think it's terribly exciting when you're listing things, um, the different possibilities, technologies, long-lasting implants. I, we've never been in a place with so many enticing kind of tools, optimized formulations and so on. 
having a leader refer to kids specifically in pediatrics the way uh, Deborah did, that doesn't happen in a lot. Of, so <laughs> a lot of the elements um, are in place. At EGPAF, we work across 19 countries. We're about 3,000 staff. We um, are embedded, if you will, with, uh, in public health sites with ministries of health, 5,000 plus sites and so on. Innovating is, is a daily requirement, right? If you're stuck, you mentioned we're stuck globally. Well, what if we're stuck at 80% retention in a particular place? That isn't necessarily about another tool or technology, and God knows you can't wait for an invention or something. So you better step back, figure out what the root causes are behind being stuck. By the way, 80 is pretty good, but it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And it, it, when we're talking about 90, 90, 90, and some of us talk about 95, 95, 95, uh, and so on, that's another aspect of, of innovation. So we have it in our, in our face, if you will, in a good way on a daily basis. But the other way we think about innovation, and historically, EGPAF is 30 years, years old, is what's around the corner, sort of rooted in the question, what if we could X? Uh, one example would be uh, testing of, um, of newborns, for example. What if we could cut the time from X to Y? What if we had pediatric dolutegravir? Um, what if uh, are, is sort of what we're obligated to do? It's, it's very much in the DNA uh, of EGPAF. And as you're what ifing, you also have to, would this thing be plausibly scalable? Is it plausibly affordable? Is it plausibly sustainable? Because if we don't have those things and we don't have access, in which case it might be meaningless if, if we innovate, but it doesn't lead to impact and access for the families and communities that, that need us most. So it's pretty much a philosophy and a value within APEP. So if Chip as an implementer is in a snap-snap world, imagine what it's like as an advocate where you want things even faster, whatever is faster than snap-snap. Um, and I think, you know, basically Debbie and Chip have both said I think, things I would totally agree with. Uh, I think for me there, there are two elements here. One is the tools are fantastic, but sadly global health is littered, not only in HIV, but in many areas where we focus so much on the tools and we don't focus nearly enough on what to do with them when we have them. And, and that's to state the obvious. I think Deborah described it, I think Debbie, you described it. And so we really need to be thinking about the systems that we're developing to take any of these new innovations forward. But the other aspect for me is that we talk a lot about innovation. Innovation often lives in um, great ideas that are in often pilot projects to see how we how the innovation works. And actually, I have the pleasure of serving on Debbie's advisory board. And last week, I heard for the first time from someone else on the board um, the idea of pilotitis, um, which I loved. Um, there's pilotitis of innovation. But if we need to go to scale, we've got to move beyond the, the great idea done small to the good, if not great idea, gone large. And so for me, it's not so much what does innovation look like, but how do we innovate as a community? And a lot of that, and, and Chip used the word, which is, is anathema in our world often, is failure. To me, if we are successful, it is that we are failing faster and learning what's not working more quickly. And that is um, uh, to, to turn innovation a tad to being willing to accept that we don't know many of the things that we wish we knew sitting here even in 2019. And if we are really going to innovate at scale, we're going to have to try some things, accept, and that's easy again as an advocate to say, harder perhaps for a major funder, um, harder for a company and a board of directors to accept, but we have to acknowledge that we're going to have to fail in trying some things that are innovative. 
And in that, we are going to find some things that are going to work, if not perfectly, um, at least good enough to get us to X million more uh, on treatment or X million more infections averted. Because the status quo, um, with all of its innovation, is clearly leaving us far from where we need to be. Ambassador Burst, let me ask you, uh, Mitchell just mentioned uh, pilotitis, but PEPFAR certainly has been the leader in funding and integrating demonstration projects into its programs. How do you approach uh, taking those results when there's a best practice and determining how to scale that up across the program? So I'll give you our life cycle of this. So let's say we had this incredible so we, we're very honest about our failures, and you can find our failures on our website, and that's why we put all the data up there. So you can look at where we're failing. So we've been very clear over the last um, five years that we've been failing in finding men. The fact that we've decreased new infections, and I just want to come back to that 18%, because that's an absolute number of new infections at a time when the population has gone up by 10 or 15%. So the denominator has gone up. So the rate of new infections, as you can see from the microbicide studies, has dropped by almost 50%. So that's exciting, but we have a bigger and bigger population. So the absolute number, so it's not that things are failing. They just have to be taken to scale quicker. So we have another issue besides young women and the DREAMS program and the rate of infections. We had, we made all this progress with only finding 50% of the men. And that puts an enormous burden on young women. Because now we're saying to young women, well, you need to have PrEP and you need to have this and you need to have that because we can't find the 50% of the men that are asymptomatic that they're getting infected from. Well, we got to do that too. So in Lesotho, with our partner EggPath, they came up with this incre two incredible innovations. One, men who are leaving for long periods of time and crossing the border um, need to have six months worth of drugs. And they can give it to them right at the border. Huge. Second, men, we finally talked to men. I know we talked to, we'd say all the time we talked to the community, but the men weren't visible in the community, so we weren't talking to men. I, I'm going to be totally honest. We were talking to the people that we saw. We didn't see the men. Um, so finally, we went to the private sector, said we're failing, help us, like they helped it with, with dreams, and they went in and they talked to men. And it was very interesting to us because the great thing about qualitative and quantitative research, it changes your, you know, your perception to what is the truth. Mm. And so the men had a whole list of things. One, support groups, sitting and waiting, waiting lines, chit-chatting. I only want to see other men. I don't want to, I want to see male nurses, male physicians, and I want to see other men in the clinic. I don't want to go in a clinic that's all women and children. And so Lesotho came up with this brilliant men's corner. That was three years ago. We wrote it up. We gave incentive funding to all of our countries. So that's year one. We try to incentivize progress. Lesotho is doing a great job with the men's corner. Finally, after two years of incentivizing, we finally said, you know what? We're just going to pay you at status quo because you've made no progress. In find you found 90% of the women, but you're still missing 50% of the men. The thought of losing money spurred people to action, <laughs> which was very shocking to me because um, there was a group that responded to the incentive, but there was another group of recalcitrant countries that only shifted policy when they thought they were going to lose funding. 
um, to find the men. But we couldn't keep paying for something that wasn't having results. And now, probably 80, 90% of all PEPFAR countries are adapting models that are open early in the morning when they want to see the physicians, not having waiting lines. Because our entire program, and we just have to be honest with each other, was built on, on treating symptomatic people. And so five years ago when we started treating asymptomatic people, we just kept doing the same thing. It doesn't work. Now we're like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> but we should have, as Deborah talked about, knew that that wasn't going to work. But now we're doing all of these pieces and taking them to scale. We're still frustrated that we have brilliance. Like today, the Democratic Republic of Congo is putting more men on treatment proportionally than any of our other PEPFAR countries. Because they're doing um, index testing confidentially, which is the way it should be done. Get the partner names, divorce that from the index case, give those names to community health workers who go out into the community and just say, we have HIV in our community, and it was suggested that we think you should be tested. You don't have to identify it back to the person. Hmm. And so these kinds, they, now are seeing this biggest increase in men. So when it comes from a country like Lesotho or it comes from a country like DRC, we have countries that go, well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so we're trying to break down that barrier of perception. Because um, when we have something great that has been found, it should be within snap, snap, taken to scale immediately in all of our countries. And it's frustrating when it doesn't. And the other final piece that we've learned is policies that have been adopted at the national level did not find their way to the <laughs> sites. And thank goodness our implementing partners told us. Because they finally came back and said, I can't hit my targets because that policy change that we needed is not at the site. And so now we've learned to ask for circulars and just go and our staff go and look for that circular being posted at the site and that the individuals are attending to each of those policy changes. So we've learned 16 years in, we've learned that paper on a shelf doesn't work. I know that seems like it, we should have known that, <laughs> but, um, but this partnership piece between private sector, our implementing partners, and the funders is the only way that we're going to make progress. You're absolutely correct. And the question is, is the dialogue strong enough to get the insights quick enough to get that translated to the people we're serving fast well, enough? Not to make it worse, but the three years you said it took, I will add a year to that on the front end because folks didn't like the idea of men's corners. <laughs> and so it took, but, that, but that's a legitimate thing. It's going to cost money to do these things men and the innovation in terms of approach was let's de let's demystify this a little bit if men aren't showing up the radical idea is ask them why <laughs> and when they say when do you want me to come to the clinic you're open from eight to five i work from seven to six when do you want me to show up you're not open on the weekend mm. Mm -hmm. You start to, and I'm also interested in hypertension. My wife or my partner says, why are we at the clinic? I'm not going to come home and say, because I, they insisted I'd be tested. Mm -hmm. I have other concerns. There's diabetes in my family, whatever it might be. I mean, it, let's not turn some things that are, don't require rocket science into rocket science <laughs> 
problems. And the uptick in men visiting sites was dramatic. And you do have to incentivize uh, other folks to take it up. In part, the reference to it, we're not going to do it because Lesotho did it. What are they, 27% um, uh, uh, rate of infection. Then other countries that are at three and four, well, that's Lesotho. It's unique. It's not relevant. It sure is relevant, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, anyway, I, just to jump in, it takes longer than it ever should. And sometimes we overcomplicate um, the search for the answers we want when they might be right in front of us. Steve, you asked uh, Deborah, would there be different routes for the adolescent young women and the men? My first thought is I wouldn't speak to my brother about his going to see the doctor in the way I speak to my daughter about it. In fact, I might not even speak to my daughter because my wife speaks to um, my daughter in maybe more complete ways. The short answer is we have to do that, but unless and until we pay more attention to the patients, what they need, what they're willing to do, add for the men the ability to text and get an appointment at 6.30 on Thursday where they're gonna be attended by a male nurse and they're gonna be able to get other services. They get home late, how was the clinic? Clinic was fine, I don't have diabetes. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, there's a common sense to it mm -hmm. that we should apply more often. And a basic change management, if you will, <laughs> to, uh, but also, I mean, it brings in human-centered design yeah. and, and really keeping the end user's preferences um, front and center. And Mitchell, maybe I ask you to piggyback on that a little bit, just from the yeah. advocacy perspective, because uh, you really look at those sorts of issues in terms of enabling access. Actually, I was just going to pick up on the same exact issue. And when, when Steve asked that um, to, to Deborah, I thought the same thing, not about your brother and daughter, but I thought the same thing in terms of, yes, what, the, the actual activity will be different for different mm -hmm. populations, but the process is similar if not the same. And that process really comes down so really what I think needs to happen is for most of us sitting up here and sitting in, in organizations, whether advocacy, uh, industry, uh, implementer or funder, to actually shut up every so often. Not something I or most, many of my colleagues do very well. And listen to the people we're trying to serve. And what I, when I look out on the last 30 years of, of my career in this epidemic and the last 15 years at AVAC, the, the more we shut up and listen to what the ultimate beneficiary wants and needs, is the quicker we can create the programs that will meet their needs. And, and that means um, not just thinking about the technologies, which we do need to create and innovate from a scientific perspective, but when we think about how to deliver and what to deliver, none of us really know sitting in head offices or in conference rooms or in too many conferences. We learn it by talking to people. And shameless plug, we just actually put up our PX Pulse podcast today focused on human-centered design, a project that, that we're running in South Africa that is looking at, it's about breaking the cycle of transmission. And it's user-centered design in a project that is um, looking both at young women at risk and looking at men based on all the great data that PEPFAR has and many of the researchers have showing phylogenetically what's happening in this epidemic. So it's looking at men about eight years older. And we're trying through human-centered design, behavioral economics, all the things that industries use to get us to buy products in New York or Washington to do exactly the same thing in South Africa and Kenya and Lesotho and DRC. 
Because at the end of the day, the end result might be different, but the process of listening is, is critical. And I will say that, that the insights are um, not necessarily rocket science, and they aren't necessarily new. We've known for as long as most of us have been in this epidemic that young women, particularly, are far less concerned about HIV than about falling pregnant. We've known that since the early 90s. But if we begin to really think, what does that mean for a program? And it means talking about PrEP and condoms, not because they prevent HIV, but it's talking about things that often, mm. as public health people, we don't always feel comfortable about, like sexuality, relationships, and pleasure. Because at the end of the day, um, people don't want to be thinking about their HIV risk. So we spent a lot of time in this project understanding that the more we talk about risk and risk perception and helping people understand their risk is one of the quickest ways to get them to tune out and turn off of our programs. They're interested in relationships, and some of them want relationships that are about love and security and, and romanticism. Some want and need relationships that provide them material benefit and, and everything in between, and that's not a judgment. That is understanding our reality. And the only way we will deliver any product, as simple as a condom or as simple as cabotegravir, as they are scientifically, and I don't mean to pretend that cabotegravir is simple, but as we think about delivering them, it is not going to be about HIV, it is not going to be about risk, it is going to be about meeting people where they are, uh, which is about their lives, their relationships, and, and it's interesting when I think about innovation and what, what you said, Chip, is, and it's so true, much of this is common sense. We didn't need to do human-centered design to say, oh, well, let's understand what, what the person wants. But it is remarkable that 38 years into this epidemic, many programs, many policies um, are, are worried, concerned about the same things in 2019. And mm -hmm. we see this, in, and I know you've talked about this a lot, Debbie. Um, you know, there are ministries of health that don't want to talk about sex. So I don't care how much investment we put in, if we can't talk about the very issue, um, then we are not going to succeed. So a lot of this is about innovation in, in the way we communicate and what we communicate that will help us get the scientific innovation um, to actually have impact. Um, let's pivot maybe to a different population that's dealing with different issues, which is children. And picking up on what Deborah spoke about in the fireside chat, Chip, maybe let's start with you. From your vantage point at AgPath, you spend a lot of your time focusing on the needs of children and implementing programs on the ground. What are the particular challenges with ensuring access for children? Right now, only 54% of children living with HIV are on ART. It's something we've continued to struggle with. Um, what are the particular challenges? Where do you see opportunities? Um, there are challenges and opportunities both, and they operate on a couple of different levels. At more of a metal level, um, the reason I commented about uh, Deborah's earlier remarks around kids is too often kids are forgotten, uh, frankly. Um, I, people talk about the importance of kids and they should be prioritized, but that's uh, very often not the case um, in practice. Um, and so one of our, one of the most important challenges, I think one of the first things Ambassador Burks did when she was appointed ambassador was to roll out accelerating children on, on treatment. Um, Deborah referred to not making any money on certain, as, as the market, as we make more progress towards eliminating um, uh, um, HIV and AIDS in kids, 
by definition, in, in, to use the, the term, the market gets smaller. There's less incentive for the private sector to invest and innovate. Well-intentioned companies, that's not a criticism, it's, it, it, there, there are facts. So uh, one of the things I really worry about is we're gonna fall into that sort of public health trap which is to make a whole bunch of progress, we get close, and then we move on to something else. We don't finish the job. So we have got to uh, really keep, um, sorry to be trite about it, but our foot on the pedal around um, uh, pediatrics. We need to do the kind of thing, and again, Deborah was referring to the kind of consultation that we've had now over the last three years under the auspices of uh, the Vatican. Um, uh, around pediatrics. If the market, if the drivers of innovation, the, the normal drivers and the market drivers of innovation aren't gonna work for kids, and demonstrably they don't work for kids, then policy and advocacy and political leadership, like from Ambassador Burtz, like from the pri uh, private sector and from others, has gotta fill in that space. If any of us let up on it, then we let up on it, and we're going to see spikes in uh, vertical, trans, uh, vertical infections, uh, for example. Um, there are at the, you know, that's sort of political policy, more, more uh, metal level. Um, the challenges on the ground are related to kids are about the cascade, right? And so 54% uh, represents some substantial progress over a number of years, but is not remotely good enough. We're stuck in certain places. And just to demystify that, what are we talking about? You gotta find the kids, you gotta get the test results, and you gotta initiate them uh, uh, and retain them on treatment. If you've got crappy testing uh, regimen and, and time, turnaround times and so on, that's a major link, a, a major blockage. If you've got completely inadequate pediatric formulations, and probably very few or any of us in this room have had the challenge of trying to get some version of an adult pill that's nasty uh, to be taken on a daily basis by a four-month-old, uh, for example. Just picture that. It's hard <laughs> enough to have a four-month-old, much less having to... So if we don't have optimized tools, we don't then get optimal impact. And, and so there are a host of challenges around there, and that's why it's exciting to have the kind of progress and innovations we're hearing about. Pediatric DTG is a big deal and is gonna make a big difference. There are ways in which we can test uh, kids faster and get those test results to the caregiver a lot faster. But those things then have to be scaled, they have to be affordable, they have to be sustained, and there are a whole bunch of complexities that, that uh, come into that. Um, this Rome consultation, oh, by the way, I, you almost broke my heart when you said you sent the letter to IT for verification. <laughs> you have no idea how hard we worked to get you that uh, email. <laughs> and second, you're going to get another one uh, because the next consultation is in April and, and it's been confirmed. But in that room, besides the ambassador and Deborah, is representative of FDA, European uh, Medical Association, countries, faith-based organizations, which we should talk about related to stigma, but other things as well. You bring all those folks together with a demonstrable commitment to accelerate progress for kids, and where Deborah's got a problem with WHO or the FDA has a problem with whoever, 
they're all in the same room making specific commitments, then change happens. Um, and I, I'm gonna put in, uh, make a suggestion to folks here. There is online, the commitments that Deborah was referring to are recorded, they're tracked, they're updated on a quarterly basis, and you click UNICEF committed to X, Aviv committed to X, the ambassador committed to X, uh, EGPAF likewise, on down the line, Mylan and, and so on, Abbott, uh, uh, et cetera. This is online, Pediatric HIV Action Plan, all one word, dot org. I think you'll find it cool and interesting that that's a way of holding folks to their word and their public commitment. We didn't make a commitment for Viv. Deborah and her team made a commitment, and that's where December 12th um, and the Pediatric Dollar Caregiver piece uh, comes together. Big thanks to PEPFAR and UNAIDS and others um, uh, that these consultations continue. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think you'll see in our COP guidance this year is we're just, I, when we get to the point where we're so frustrated, so over the last three years, we know what these pediatric cases are, yes. We know that we still have some transmission, but the majority of cases of those missing children, most of them are between 5 and 15 who haven't been diagnosed, and we owe that to them. But their mothers are alive, and so, and 90% of the moms are in our clinic. So we're just putting out an absolute requirement that 100% of the children are tested for every mom that's in the clinic. The moms are in the clinic every three months. Within six months, we should have 100% of those children tested. And we're just not going to accept less than that. That's where those silent children, and I think this gets back to the policy pieces. When you asked about why stuff doesn't move, why PrEP doesn't move as fast as it should. I'll be very clear, PrEP didn't move as fast as it should because in country after country, the Ministry of Health said you can't give PrEP except to the, the sex workers between 15 and 24. Now, you want to create stigma then. I mean, here we are two years later where they say, oh, now you can treat all of the, the girls who need it and the young women. And I'm like, well, now you've made it. So they feel like if they're going to get PrEP, that they're going to be identified as a sex worker. I mean, we can't be having these public health messages that don't make sense. When we send out a message that said 80% of the children over five are no longer with us, people stop looking. We stopped looking because we had all the teams focused on find them before they're five because most of them will not have survived. Well, those are gritty kids, and they've survived. And now it's on us because they did everything to live without treatment, and now we have to find them. And so we are going to really start really pushing. Our OVC program has been remarkable in going back and helping, but now we're going to say every mom that has HIV has to have an OVC caseworker to help them find those children. We're just gonna be very clear about what our expectations are, because the children are there and we have failed them. And this is really, this really, as a program manager, makes us upset every day, just like we couldn't understand why we weren't getting control of the TB epidemic when all of those clients are already in our clinic and why aren't they all on TB preventive therapy? I mean, we just have to really be comprehensive. And I think the work that we have to do to clean up a misperception now, I mean, to get PrEP now to young women is gonna be very difficult. It's gonna be very difficult. I mean, we hope that we're gonna be at 
100,000, 200,000 that will pass your number. And then I just wanted to, to finish with the children piece. We'll know within a year any kind of potential side effects that happen from any of these drugs because we're the biggest market of supplier of ARVs at the site levels in the world. I mean, there's a lot of pressure that comes from that. So when people start writing me and say, well, we have 100 cases of this, rare events we're going to see. Because you know we have a country that already has a half a million people on TLD. If there's something that's going to go wrong, we are going to see it. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. That means we have pharmacovigilance and surveillance happening. Um, the fact that we picked up the cases in Botswana of the neural tube defect, that was a good thing. That means that what we're funding is working. But it shouldn't put a halt on our programming. We've lost 18 months of TLD rollout because we put out a signal without a risk-benefit analysis. And I think that's a lesson to all of us in the room that we don't react until we know what that's put that signal in the context of people's lives so that we can do an informational, really knowledge-based decision-making. We say that all the time, and then we don't give people all the information so that they can make the decision. And then it was clear that we lose more children and we lose more moms if they're not on TLD, even with a 4 in 1,000 risk of neural tube defects that we don't want to see. So these are the kinds of things that we have to always be reacting to. But after 30-some-plus years in this field, when that TLD piece came out, not one minister of health, not one multilateral organization talked to one woman in one country. So for all of our discussions of we're with community and we talk to community, we didn't until after the fact. And then we all got to, when you said, what's the value of the meetings? It was Amsterdam, yeah. mm -hmm. where we all said, community, help us with this. And they got together, and they demanded, and they started talking, and that changed everything. But you know, sometimes we say that we're doing all these things, and when push comes to shove, and it's a really big decision, we forget those practices, and we go back to a very paternalistic kind of approach that says women can't make decisions about their own health, and we're going to make it for them. And I think that for all the progress that we've made, I'm not, I'm not shocked that we're still the same place where we are with stigma, because we're still telling women what to do without asking them what they want. And I think we think we've come a long way until a crisis occurs, and then we revert to our normal behaviors. Mm -hmm. Mitchell, you wanted I, to jump in? I, I did, because I think that just that last point is so important. And, and if I look back on the last year, the Dalia Tegrevi experience uh, teaches us so many lessons. And, and one of them, and perhaps not surprisingly coming from an advocate, is the importance of community engagement. And, and you're right, Ambassador, that it, that it came in the middle of last year after WHO made a very quick statement, regulatory agencies put out circulars working with, with, with the company. And, and, and WHO basically said women shouldn't, more or less, I'm paraphrasing, women shouldn't have dietegravir. And to me, the most remarkable thing is that African women, the fiercest advocates I've had the pleasure to work with, said, you can't decide that in Geneva. And, and one in particular, a woman named Jackie Wambui in Kenya, really led, even leading up to Amsterdam, a chance for women to weigh in. And, and, and it was fascinating because what her argument was is, 
it may increase my risk, but then I want better access to contraceptives because I think dolutegravir would be better for me. And if I'm worried, and if I should be rightly worried about neural tube defects, then I want contraception. And what's really remarkable to me, not surprising but wonderfully remarkable, is Jackie and many of her colleagues were the exact same cohort of women who led the conversations this year around the results of the ECHO trial. Mm -hmm. And there was a big concern, I won't get into all the details, about a, a hormonal contraceptive, the widely, most widely used injectable, that may be increasing risk of, of, of HIV acquisition. And even before the results came out, what, what Jackie and many of the fiercest voices in Africa said is, even if it does, I still want to be able, perhaps, to choose Depo-Provera, even if it didn't, as it happens, the results came out, spoiler alert, happily, it does not substantially increase risk of infection. But they said, even if it did, then I want to know that. I may still want Depo-Provera, and I want access to oral prep. And it really comes back to, I think, what you were saying earlier, Deborah. That's about listening to people. A, a, a woman can decide that she wants an antiretroviral that maybe is doing something that can be counteracted with something else. Or maybe she wants a contraceptive method and oral prep. And it is not for an agency or a ministry or, work, most of all, a provider at the clinic level to make that decision. It is incumbent on us to, and that's the innovation that I think we probably, if there are two things I would love is to get rid of stigma and to get the innovation that our, our health systems actually provided that kind of, of, of opportunity for what is truly informed choice. Because every single person I interact with in our work as, in advocacy and in community engagement can make those risk benefit decisions if we provide them the information. And we, we tend not to do that. Um, we tend, whether we're at, at, at agency heads, and again, not PEPFAR, luckily, and I think what you heard from the investor has really been transformative. But what we need to do is make that ripple all the way down to, the, to every clinic that allows people to get the information and make the decisions. And that sounds incredibly aspirational, and that's my job, is to be aspirational, but I think it's entirely achievable. So we're going to invite Deborah to come up here in just a moment. And before I do, um, maybe just ask each of you, what excites you as you're kind of looking forward? Um, is there something on the horizon, a, a tool or approach that you think could be a game changer? Uh, uh, you know, assuming comes to market and makes it to the end user, what excites you kind of looking ahead in terms of the next phase of HIV innovation? Well, you know, I think the HIV field has driven innovation across the world for everything. I mean, I, I don't, I, I really believe that to be true. I mean, it's, it's these discussions that have been transformative in people's lives. I think the, the next really big discussion is how do you treat the well, the asymptomatic? And if we get it right for HIV, then countries can tackle NCDs. This discussion about NCDs yeah. and primary care I'm all for it in reality, but I mean, we have primary care available at every one of these clinics, and the asymptomatic men are not coming. And if you don't find them when they have early essential hypertension and you wait till they have a stroke or a cardiovascular event, that is no better than waiting until they have very serious end-stage HIV disease, which is where 50% of the men are still coming, still being diagnosed in TB clinics and inpatient. That's a failure. It's a failure of program, but it's a failure of people seeing themselves in the healthcare delivery system. So if you're not pregnant and you're under 25 and your access is severely limited, because people ask you why you want to be there, 
Um, and if you're a man of any, they, they don't, they're not worried about being asked why they're there. They're worried about someone seeing them and questioning their virility and their masculinity, the fact that they would have a weakness to go to the health center. So we have to turn all of that around. But if we turn it around for HIV, we've positioned every one of these countries to be enormously successful in their NCD. The NCDs cost really nothing to treat. But if you don't have the clients in the clinic and you have to go find them, that is going to be prohibitively expensive. So I really feel like the HIV program has to figure this out and help countries figure this out by talking to the mm. community because it, it will be the game changer for HIV asymptomatic access to treatment and the game changer for prevention of NCD consequences. Great, thank you. A couple of things, actually, are very exciting, including what the ambassador is referring to in terms of minimum program requirements in the next COP round around pediatrics. Um, finding those, um, those kids, 5 to 15, would be a big damn deal um, for the individuals, for the families, but it, it would tell us a number of other things that are important. Um, around pediatrics, um, we, for four years, and this wasn't a pilot, although I think for the Gates Foundation folks, <laughs> a pilot a, a work at this scale is still a pilot somehow, <laughs> but across nine countries, 600 sites, we were able to uh, demonstrate that point of care early infant diagnosis um, was dramatically a game changer. The average turnaround time, so take a test, test results to a caregiver, average of 55 days. Point of care EID properly located, proper training for the, the team on the ground at the clinical level, moved the 55-day average to same-day turnaround time. It dramatically um, increased initiation on treatment. Those few months are very often the difference between life and death, unless they're resilient enough to become five or seven or nine years old without treatment. I mean, that, that is game-changing. If it's affordable, if it's sustainable, if it's um, rolled out in other places. Between pediatric dietary and point of care EID, oh my goodness, we just have uh, so much more potential to get to the point where we eliminate mother-to-child transmission, which is a step in the direction of an AIDS-free generation, which I believe is the pathway to get to 2030 and ending HIV uh, as a public health crisis. So that all, um, to me, is particularly um, exciting. Uh, it's exciting every day in Washington, D.C. to see what Congress is going to do <laughs> about funding. But I, I, I think um, I am optimistic about also and excited by the success of the Global Fund. And I'm excited and uh, pleased by the resilient bipartisan support uh, for PEPFAR because, in part, PEPFAR is getting results and at the end of the day. One last thing, and I, I, you're talking about NCDs. I, I don't know where the whole UHC uh, debate is going to go, but I know in some countries, high burden countries, if it doesn't use HIV as an entry point yeah. in services, not just for kids, but for families and men, it's a major missed opportunity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who's gonna figure that out? Who's gonna go first? And if 
presidents don't wake up thinking about kids or having kids and ending HIV and AIDS and kids be a part of their legacy and they want UHC or the initial steps to be. How do you bring those things together? I, I don't care what you know, vehicle we attach our wagon to, but by God, make sure the pediatric wagon is attached to it. If it needs to be UHC, then it's UHC. And how do we figure out um, creating sustained political and policy leadership for kids? Because that's the only way we're going to end AIDS in kids. Great. Thanks, Jim. So much to be excited about. And I, on that last point, I, you know, if we shift to UHC and, and, and think it's instead of HIV, it would be the yeah. biggest tragedy around. There is not a, I can't think of any global health experience uh, of a program that has transformed public health other than HIV. We've tried to expand services through, uh, through vaccinations, through uh, contraceptives for 60, 70, 80 years, and we've done well. Nothing has been as transformative as the HIV response, PEPFAR and the Global Fund. So it, it's not just, it, it's got to be the, the, the front end of that, that shift would be, be my piece. Um, I do always struggle with game changers for two reasons. One, um, this is, is no game to state the obvious, and I always get a little nervous that, that it plays into that. But also, in thinking about them, we, we often can come up with one thing that's the magic piece. And having been someone who's worked in, vac in HIV vaccines, people love to think that with that we end the epidemic. We don't, unfortunately, because back to the issue of stigma. Um, so for me, there's a systemic issue that actually gets me excited. So when I sit here in 2019 and looking back on the last seven years of where we are with oral prep, um, I have good news and bad news. Um, we've done, as a global community, in the seven years since oral prep was approved by FDA, we have actually, as a community, gone further with that new innovation in prevention than anything else. We did, we've done faster even um, than, than earlier programs. It's still too slow. Um, so for me, what's exciting is how we shift from what we've learned, which is basically the random acts of goodness of oral prep of a couple of projects with a couple hundred people are never going to teach us how to deliver things at scale. Um, so for me, the most exciting thing is a partnership that is actually with Vive and the Gates Foundation and PEPFAR and um, a number of the multilaterals, UNAIDS, WHO, the whole alphabet soup of, of the HIV response in developing what we call the Biomedical Product Introduction Collaborative. And apologies because it focuses on the biomedical, but the idea is how do you create the pipes through which to flow any of the next generation products. And the bottom line is when you do get a new, better treatment, we have systems to deliver it, even if they're not always functioning in every country, community, and clinic for treatment. But for prevention, we don't really have a system. We don't have prevention programs that robustly market and create demand for prevention generally. So we're working um, on cabotegravir's product introduction, not because we think it's the best perfect prevention option. It is one of many. And my vision is that we will, over time, the best response will be the one that has the most imperfect prevention options provided from which people can choose. And through this collaboration with industry, with community, um, with the UN agencies, with PEPFAR, is trying to think ahead so that if we are fortunate in 2022 or 2023 to get a licensed injectable, that we can do in three or four years what's taken us seven years with oral prep. And that's not good enough because we will have other products, hopefully a dual pill for both contraceptive and HIV prevention, hopefully a dual injection, hopefully a dual implant. We're going to have a vaginal ring. We need a system that can deliver all of that and not think product by product, but rather uh, system by system, and perhaps most importantly, back to where we began this conversation, with the person at the center. Um, so I'm incredibly excited that we do that. And if cabotegravir, and apologies, if it is not shown to be safe and effective, 
we still have those pipes being built to deliver any of the next generation products. That's what I think the next three or four years hold um, and, and why I am, for all the frustration of things going too slowly, why I sit here incredibly excited. Great, thank you. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and invite uh, Deborah to join us as soon as we get a chair up here. Um, musical chairs today. <laughs> uh, in the interim, we'll, we're going to speak with Deborah just for a moment with the panel, and then we're going to open up for audience questions. So please get your questions ready, and we'll be turning to you momentarily. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so Deborah, let me ask you maybe to reflect on what you've heard from the panel uh, and um, any observations or, or comments you want to make on, on what they've had to say? Um, so what was extremely heartening is, actually, I think there's a huge amount of consistency with the fireside kind of chat um, that Stephen and I had and everything that the panelists said today. I think my main reflection, and I hope everybody in the audience has, has really kind of connected with this as well, is it's all about partnerships. I mean, how many times did each one of the panelists reference another member of the panel or uh, members of our community who are not here today, but actually we work with every day, whether it's CHAI, whether it's UNICEF, whether it's UNAID. So there is a community of us working in partnership to achieve great things. And I think that I'm very heartened and excited, actually. I was doing a lot of nodding and smiling at, 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 the, <laughs> at the panel's you know, commentary because I'm utterly aligned. I'm utterly aligned with it. And, and to your point, just to be clear, you know, cabotegravir for, for prevention is an option. I'm with you. I'm excited about the pipes we build. Yep. Maybe cab will be the, the one. Maybe it won't. But actually what we've built from an infrastructure perspective mm -hmm. really offers us phenomenal hope. Um, and we all continue to partner to deliver that. So it was great. I really enjoyed it. Good. Anything that you would ask or inquire of the panel before we turn to the audience? I mean, I think the only thing that I would ask, and really it's, question you know about the patient which to you we do our best to have this kind of patient-centric approach and to listen to the community and and hear their voice um, you know and you reflected on when it's gone well and when it maybe hasn't gone as well um, and I think you know what advice would you have for any of us on how to do a better job in that, because obviously that really is something that we're very much striving to do. So just any mm. thoughts that you would have, your one or two top tips would be extraordinarily valuable. Well, I love that you asked that, thank you. I, I, I think, you, you know, one of the, <laughs> and, and that was not a paid endorsement of community engagement. Um, no, I, I think one element of this is, is, to state the obvious, prevention particularly is hard. And it's interesting because the treatment world, not just for HIV, but in any area, the patient advocate voice, and I, I don't know about V, but I know many companies now have a chief patient officer. You do as well, okay. A new term I just came upon a couple of months ago, a, a yeah. chief patient officer. That's great in therapeutic areas. But in prevention areas, the conversation's different. And I think um, you know, prevention, by definition, is for, for everybody. Um, and, and those who are infected with anything, as well as those who are not, but may be at risk of it. So it is much harder because we don't have the obvious uh, groups and efforts. And we've been very fortunate with support from USAID, from the Gates Foundation, with PEPFAR, to help create some of those uh, new voices in prevention. Um, but I think a lot of this is about um, being very clear 
what questions we're asking. And I think for me, the one greatest piece of advice I could give is that very often, and it's true in product development, but even in, in other areas, um, very often we talk about community consultations where the honest truth is that the conversation is with the organizer of the meeting looking for community to say, yes, I like what you're proposing. I think we need to really shift that. If we're going to do community consultations, be honest. What's on the table for negotiation? Whether it's price, whether it's a delivery system, whether it's a policy, um, let's be really honest of what's, what's possible for negotiation and change and what's not. And honestly, in our work with, with all of our community partners, um, people are okay, not always happy, but they can live with something if they're told this is out of bounds, we, we, that's non-negotiable, if they know that up front. But don't do kabuki theater, where we bring communities in and it becomes a tick box. And um, there is a science, actually, to community engagement. It is different than phase one trial design. It's different than efficacy trials or taking a product through regulatory uh, approvals. But there is a science to how you engage. And I, I think we frankly haven't seen um, uh, as, as thorough an investment in that um, as we need to throughout the entire piece. And the, the one other element to that is bring people along to the conversation. Again, we've been very fortunate to work with many of your colleagues uh, on Cabotegravir that it's not enough to talk about the phase three trials, which become the alphabet soup of numbers and acronyms of trials. People want to know about the trials, but they want to know about the overall product development pathway. And we often get into the weeds of a trial uh, or the results of a trial. People want to be engaged in a conversation that's a journey. And you started it decades ago in the scientific world, and, and we come into communities very far along. They have a different movie in their head, but we need to get everybody watching the same movie much earlier in the process. Okay, thank you. Do you want to add anything before we turn to the audience? No, I think what we've really learned is you have to talk to the people who aren't there because they have a different, um, you know, the people who get to the clinics, the people who are in our DREAMS program, um, working on HIV prevention for young women, there's another group that aren't there. And I think we're really taking time to really figure out why aren't they there and talking to them. And so I think that always, getting people to find the people that they aren't talking to is often a little bit more difficult because it requires additional work. But we're really trying to, look at the people we haven't reached with prevention or treatment to really understand what their unique needs are. Okay. All right, well, we'll turn uh, now to the audience and uh, we'll take about three comments. Uh, I'll ask that you state your name and any organization affiliation and just keep your interjection as brief as possible. Start here. Hi, Matthew Rose with Health Gap. Um, I, yeah. I guess I have to, it's going to cross over two things. First of all, I want to thank you for doing the panel, but I think it was a missed opportunity, and I wish people would discuss it more about not having anyone of most impacted communities on the stage to talk about what it means to make a decision. As a person who's chosen multiple prevention options in my life, the, each decision is unique and important, and talking about what future delivery like looks like in innovation and what innovation means to me versus what everyone else might be important. And then the second thing is, how do we lo learn from what we've done in the past around changing the regulatory process around ARVs to make it easier for pipelines going forward. It seems like we still have the same red tape that is slowing down getting access. And innovation, again, doesn't mean anything to people if it actually doesn't reach them in time to make it a successful impact in their life. Thank you. Other comments, questions? The one here. 
Hi everyone, I'm Minaz. I'm a student from Johns Hopkins Science. And uh, I've recently, I'm taking a course on global health policy, so I've been interested in HIV, UHC. Uh, I would definitely agree with everybody that innovation, even if we are very forward with innovation, the fact that it doesn't reach the, the people who need it is uh, daunting. Uh, and my question would be, so one of my friends is from Botswana, and she was saying that uh, the government provides ARVs for free. Uh, even the, uh, the prevalence rate in, of HIV in Botswana is around 25%. Uh, so because the ARVs are available for free, uh, the community is very careless, and they don't really take care, and they don't really uh, think about having uh, intercourse with anybody. And so how do we you know, make the community aware that we are providing you with the drugs, but you have to take care of it and you know utilize it accordingly. Uh, yeah, I think it's a challenge. So, great, thank you. Any other comments, questions? Okay, one more here. Benny Kutiri from USAID. Um, great session, thank you. You all talk about the, talked about the importance of partnerships, partnership with the private sector, um, the funders, the donors. Um, um, implementing partners, advocates, community, and all. Um, I tried partnership at multiple levels, especially in biomedical research. Um, some successes, but a lot of failures as well. Um, great collaboration with Weave. Your, your organization has been great to collaborate with. So in your experience, Ambassador Burks, you had the Dreams Partnership, our impatient um, advocate hats. Now, thank you for moving from the advocate community to the facilitator when it comes to the biomedical collaborate, you know, prevention collaborative, great thing to do. So my question is, given the challenges, especially bringing private sector and public sector together, in my experience, community is easy, not very easy, but it's easy to bring academia, community, implementing partners, but the connection between private sector and public sector, that's always challenging. So if you could talk a little bit from your experience, what are, what are some of the success stories? What are some of the challenges? What are some of the way forward? Any, any, anything moving forward, especially when it comes to implementation? Great, thank you. All right, so we'll come back to the panel with those, and then we'll come back out for more comments and questions. And, and Matt, certainly take your point on uh, lack of representation from affected communities, and something we always uh, strive to do and, um, and point taken for future panels. Uh, let's start maybe with the question around the regulatory process for ARVs. Maybe I can ask Deborah you to jump in and, and maybe Mitchell as well on that point. Sure. So, um, so you're right. There is a standard approach that um, the stringent regulatory authorities, as they are known, so basically the FDA and the European Medicines Agency, um, take in order to get regulatory approval for uh, a medicine. What we have seen over the last few years is um, an openness uh, from the FDA and the EMA to put accelerated uh, processes in place where uh, medicines are considered to be meeting a particular unmet medical need. So if I look at cabotegravir and ropovirine for treatment, the, the FDA has given that medicine an expedited um, Kind of regulatory approval pathway which cuts quite a, a significant amount of time off kind of the journey um, to get it into the hands of people who are living with HIV. So I think there are some kind of innovative steps that the, the regulatory agencies have taken. 
Where I've seen the biggest change, actually, was in paediatrics. So if we talk about the Vatican meeting that we had where everybody came together, actually, as a result of that first meeting, whereas we were ploughing through extremely complicated and long processes um, which were based around kind of different bands and you, you could only do one and when you completed one you could do another which actually could take you years and years and years. What the, the FDA has done and the EMA has also made some changes is to allow you to do things in parallel and they've changed the way in which the studies are designed and delivered. That has cut massive amounts of time actually off the uh, the, the regulatory process for children where it was probably at its least effective and most cumbersome and I, I would really congratulate particularly um, Deborah Bernkrantz from the um, FDA who, who heads up the HIV and infectious disease division in the FDA who personally literally pushed this through and it has made a massive difference. So I have found the FDA actually to be a great partner and very open to specific um, feedback and changes where the process wasn't fit for purpose. Um, so I think we've had some successes, but there are all, we're always pushing, pushing for more in terms of simplification. And then particularly with the WHO, getting some accelerated uh, regulatory and approval processes approved, which means once you've got the FDA and EMA approval, actually then you can get the ability to um, have um, access to many, many other markets in the developing world on the back of that, rather than having to go country by country to get approval, which again can take many years. So I think we've seen some innovation, we're pushing for more, and we, I find the regulators, particularly at the moment, the FDA very open to that, but I don't know if anybody else has got any additional commentary. I, I do think, I think it's absolutely true. You know, when one looks back already on the numbers of histories written of the AIDS epidemic, um, look at the earliest ACT UP uh, demonstrations, and they were at the NIH and at the FDA. So activism has pushed the regulatory system from the very beginning of this epidemic, and it needs to do more. And I, I think you're absolutely right um, in where they've gone. I would just highlight two things. One, I think we're seeing it in, in the prevention world. The trials, cabotegravir amongst them, are hard to do, and they're going to get harder and harder to do because we're succeeding. We have a high-quality problem. Incidence is falling. And that means demonstrating a new prevention product, cabotegravir or anything else or a vaccine is going to get harder and harder. And there are a lot of active conversations with the FDA and with other regulators. I think it's really important that we link in the African regulators now, not after we have protocols, so they're part of the conversation, to think about what does the next generation of prevention trials look like. Because if you have cabotegravir 2.0 in seven or eight years, we're going to look at, in the current dispensation, 20,000-person trials. Not doable, not affordable. We need to be innovative. And one other area of innovation, one of the biggest holdups with oral PrEP, in addition to the stigma that, that Debbie described that was created unnecessarily, um, was a delay in allowing pregnant and breastfeeding women to be on PrEP because we have a very um, regimented system where pregnant and breastfeeding women need to, to step away in a clinical trial from active drug for, for very good reasons about safety. But we need to really explore that so that if cabotegravir is safe and effective or any other product, that we still have some countries that won't allow pregnant women to be on PrEP. And yet, they have to leave PrEP, they're pregnant, it's actually one of the highest risk periods of their lives. They get infected and guess what? They get put on treatment. We've got to figure out how to include pregnant and breastfeeding women in our clinical trials, particularly in prevention, earlier so that we have broadest possible indications, so that our programs don't have these absolutely insane realities, which is that you take a woman off 
an ARV because you don't know if it's safe enough and she gets infected, you put her back on that same ARV to save her life. We have got to do better. Um, let me ask uh, all of you to weigh in on this question around ARV access and availability being a, a detriment to prevention efforts and uh, maybe increasing uh, risky behavior with the knowledge that treatment is available. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, our biggest problem is not that, it's that most people don't believe they're at risk. So if you even go to Botswana where 25% of the adults are infected, no one believes they're at risk for HIV. So I think we've got the opposite issue of how we really get people to acknowledge their risk. I, I think our US ambassadors are really quite phenomenal because when we talk, we talk glibly about the now now and the snap snap of getting these policy approved. They're the ones going to the ministers of health and the prime ministers and doing the daily work to make these minimum program requirements real. But our ambassador that is out in Ghana um, was talking about TLD and went out to talk to community and said, TLD stands for the life drug. This is the drug you can live with. This is the drug with less side effects. This is the drug where U equals U. And I think that in Botswana could be very powerful where undetectable is untransmittable and really bringing that to, sit, to change the conversation from you know, HIV is a deadly disease and that's why you're on drug, to HIV is a disease that you live with, you thrive with, and you're on life drugs. And I think part of this is just changing our nomenclature. Sometimes as public health people, we're always just very risk-benefit and, you know, incidence and prevalence and, you know, it doesn't really resonate with people and I think that's where the private sector comes in and just to ask, answer Benny's question really quickly, we're very intentional. So when I came into this role, we had, I think, 30 different public-private partnerships, all of which were not thriving because these partnerships take time and they take constant care and feeding. And so we've limited our public-private partnerships around places where we're failing. And we're just honest with the private sector partners. And we say, okay, no one is, everybody's talking about the risk to young women and no one is doing anything. And why aren't they doing anything? Because it's really risky and no one wants to fail. So let's go in this together. And people came out of the woodwork to help us because we were honest. No, there's no, there are pilots in limited number of young women that showed a little bit of an impact. And we thought, well, maybe if we put them all together, we'll have a big impact. And it's having a big impact. But the private sector is the one who came in and said, okay, you have to talk about things differently when you're selling to something to a 15-year-old versus a 19-year-old versus a 24-year-old. And we were like, public health people are like, what? There has to be different messages. There had to be different messages. And so the private sector, so we only have four now. We have one on cervical cancer, one on men, because we're failing there, one on dreams to really push that forward, and one still in the laboratory to really continue to improve that. But we have four intentional partnerships that say this is an area where we can't figure it out by ourselves. And I think then the private sector, I think, felt valued because they really felt like they were bringing something to the table and we weren't succeeding without them. And they have been magnificent. Um, and the women's groups have been magnificent helping us with the DREAMS program, no, none of which are getting paid. 
all, all of them providing input because they want to see a better life for young women. It's really extraordinary. The men thing is more difficult. Men are harder. Deborah, so do difficult? you want to say anything <laughs> on that in terms of public private partnerships? I absolutely agree with what uh, Ambassador Burke said, actually. Oh. Completely along with that. Great. All right, well, let's turn back to the audience and do another round of comments or questions. All right, I see two uh, right there. Maggie, if you want to start. Hi, thanks very much. Um, very, very great discussion. John Hassel, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. I'd like to ask Ms. Waterhouse a question about pricing. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier in your talk about uh, getting an injectable um, into study. So I'm not going to ask you what, what Vive would charge for that price, but what goes into your thinking as a, a CEO when you're looking at price? Um, what would it cost in the domestic U.S. market? What would it cost, you know, in a low-income country? And, and how do you go about doing that? And um, can you kind of give us some framework of what, 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 what goes into your thinking? Thank you. In just a moment, I'm just going to take this other one back here first. Hi, uh, my name is Philip Kienel. I'm from the Global Health Technologies Coalition. Um, you talked a little bit about the fear of losing momentum around uh, some of the improvements and progress that's been made. Um, and you touched a little bit on the fact that we have this big movement going on on UHC. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the HIV community can leverage UHC um, to drive some of the innovation forward and vice versa? Great, thank you. All right, one more question up here. Hi, I'm Erica Phillips, I'm with Esri, and in my current work, um, we are using geospatial technology to identify where communities at risk are. And of the 48 counties, we saw not just inner city men having sex with men, but there's a problem in rural areas, and it seems to be related to the um, opioid um, crisis that we're having here in the US. But in a previous life, I worked with uh, female sex workers in Nigeria. And one of the things that I see in common between the two is that people who are in poverty don't always have the agency over their own bodies. And trying to create more opportunities to um, address the serious problems of poverty seem to be related to uh, HIV. And I hope you will speak to that as well. Great, thank you. Okay, um, so Deborah, let me turn to you on the pricing question. Sure. So, um, so let, let's just take, start with the U.S. So, in terms of the U.S., what we generally do um, is we develop our medicines and we bring them to market, and we our policy is to price them at or below um, the medicines that are currently um, available to treat HIV. So, I'll give you an example of our latest medicine, which is called Devato. Uh, and it is uh, a two-drug regimen, dolotegravir plus uh, lamivudine. Um, so we price that uh, medicine, I think, 26% below the standard market rate. And we did that because um, kind of we, we actually connected with the community, so worked with the AIDS um, Pricing Coalition and other groups, and we actually used that plus the market basket of products that are currently available to set the price of that product. So we try and be at or below the current standard of care for, for, the, for the US market. Um, that's kind of a US specific conversation. In terms of um, the um, kind of the, the middle income countries, we basically strike a balance between volume and price per unit. So put it very crudely, the more units that you order, the lower the price is, but the price that we offer is also linked to the um, 
the sort of the GNI, so the income rate of that country. And then in developing countries, we actually make no money. What we do is we give the license to generics manufacturers, which means that they can produce, if I think about Uganda, I think TLD, so tenofovir, amivunin, and dolotegravir is currently $75 a year um, for that medicine. So there really is a, a big difference between what um, cost per patient is across different countries in the world. But we have a very, very specific policy around really pricing in a very fair way. Let um, me turn to any of you who want to jump in on this question of UHC and how to leverage uh, UHC from the, the HIV community perspective. Can I just, I just want to say one thing about what she talked about, about the pricing, because people um, forget that this whole, this was very unique to PEPFAR, that the FDA created fast track waiver for generic products when they're still branded and approved in the United States for us to be able to buy at the $75. And at the same time, innovator countries, companies like Vive, transferred those licenses when they had no moral obligation to do that. I mean, they had no, they had no requirement to give a license to Myland or to CIPLA or one of the, and it's not just passing on that license, they have to pass on how to make it with quality because instead of going to a million people, it's going to go to 10 million people. And so there's really, it's unbelievable to me sometimes the altruism that exists in HIV when you're talking about innovators and generic and bureaucracy and all of those, never as fast as we want, but all of those have been unique to the HIV world and I think it has really impacted, you can see it's impacting hepatitis C and other, and, and monitoring and other agents within the global health sphere. And I think it's really, um, again, that has really pushed it into a new place. And I'm gonna let Chip talk about UHC. I've made it clear, <laughs> UHC cannot exist if we don't figure out how to welcome young women into clinics that aren't pregnant. And we don't tell them that birth control causes infertility. Um, and we do, and we find a way to get men into clinics. I mean, it's you can't have UHC with 60% of your population missing. And building it does not mean they'll come, because we have, and they haven't. I think you just talked. <laughs> I think you just talked about UHC. Uh, uh, but you did it in a much more diplomatic way. Uh. <laughs> Um, but is there a way to, to maybe leverage some of the political momentum that's happening? Well, there, there has. So um, you asked the question. I, I think we were at a session together um, at uh, UNGA about this. I am, I am no more knowledgeable or expert about UHC than anyone else in the room. And, and again, applying a certain amount of common sense. And having been in sort of global health, global development for quite some time, is this the new comfortable policy slogan that just rolls off the lips, or is it the real deal? And it's too early to say. Mm -hmm. What worries me about it is, um, unlike some other major pronouncements, universal childhood immunization, for example, there was a plan behind that. Um, and drivers and so on and so forth. <clears throat> I don't know what the plan is around UHC. I don't know that Americans should even be talking about UHC because we certainly aren't going to deliver it here anytime uh, real soon. 
But logically, it's every country for itself. Um, and that worries me a little bit because for, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, but there will be 40, 50, 60, 70 countries as we've seen in other major global initiatives that don't have all of the resources or the expertise or the staff or the wherewithal or the political support or what have you to move forward on it. So there's, to me, a conspicuous, it's every country for themselves. Now, if you're the president or the prime minister or minister of health, um, where do you begin? And I, I, I think where you begin is where you are, and you have a health system of whatever dynamic, whatever strengths and whatever weaknesses, you have um, your population participating or not, or calling on services, creating a certain level of demand. At least among two dozen countries, if HIV isn't central to defining what services are being provided by your universal health care strategy in your country, remembering that this is a one or two generation journey that folks, countries are going to be on, it's just untenable uh, to me. I mean, where are the majority of the resources coming from that are coursing through, whether it's strong or weak or, or in the middle? In Lesotho, um, I, it's around HIV uh, for the most part. And so it, therein lies a, a tremendous opportunity to define the, the, the basics of UHC around the dynamics of HIV and prevention and care and treatment in Lesotho and in other countries. Who's, who's, what tables are those being discussed around? Is, is that Lesotho will tap Ambassador Burke's on the shoulder. Can you help us with this or tap others uh, on the, I don't know where, where, how actually that's going to, but it's so logical to me and it's worrisome that every single country is sort of on its own that a really good place to start is drawing the expertise and the resources that are, are uh, reasonably present and plausibly uh, going to continue including with uh, global fund support. It's not just to say HIV, obviously, it's much broader than that. But you've got, Botswana did that a number of years ago in terms of they were more interested, I think, in driving down maternal mortality rates. But they used a lot of the early investment from Merck and Gates and so on to drive towards a reduction in maternal mortality rates through an HIV lens, given the very high prevalence rates in, in Botswana. I think the same thing pertains, potentially. So we had one last question around uh, agency for those in poverty and I think maybe speaks to some of the bigger structural and social determinants uh, that factor into HIV risk um, and that are similar from the global context and particularly in the PEPFAR space with our US domestic HIV response. Um, so I, we spoke a little bit in the fireside chat about the domestic response, but any of you want to weigh in on, on kind of this question around uh, giving more agency and kind of addressing some of these social determinants as we look across um, these different types of epidemics? Well, we learned in the U.S. that the cities that have been successful integrated all the structural determinants from housing to food to opportunity and realize that you had. So we have learned from them. We went and visited them. And that's where we really started with dreams. Um, but 
really using the population council's analysis of vulnerability and really taking that to a new place. We've been successful, I believe, in more 15 to 19 year olds because the 20 to 24 year olds requires that bridge to employment. And that's where we have not succeeded in the same way. So we're really trying to be innovative now and we're saying in these surveys we're doing, hire the dreams girls. In community health workers, is PEPFAR's hiring? Hiring the Dreams Girls. We have four million Dreams Girls already in our work. You want to talk about sexual violence advocates? Train the Dreams Girls. So I think we have to put our money where our mouth is and really help create, not just talk about agency and poverty, but really invest in those young women and make that part of our investment strategy because the money could go anywhere but we know where the need is. And so really focusing those two pieces together, it's really, you know, as, as Chip says, it's just common sense. We all of a sudden said, why aren't we employing the group that we know is the most vulnerable? So we're working on that now um, to really take that approach. But thank you for raising it, because we've really found that um, not only in Nigeria, but every place where we work, that young women's vulnerability and agency are linked. And I will tell you, these Dreams girls, they are holding their governments to account. And I've seen them on stage really yeah. saying to the Minister of Health, that's not true. That's not in our community, you know, and really giving. So it's really, it's been inspirational to listen to them and watch them grow. You know, just one thing is, as you asked your question, which was terrific, and I totally agree with what the ambassador said, um, is whether you are a sex worker in Nigeria or a young transgender woman in Mississippi. We, we tend to get so stuck on geographies and, and population characteristics. And, and at the end of the day, we're talking about marginalization, social stigma, criminalization in many cases. And for me, one of the, the most um, important things we need to do in the current environment is to break a bit of the divide between the global, which somehow means ex-US, as if well, maybe we're not part of the global world anymore, who knows. Um, but we talk about the global response and the domestic response. And what you just heard the ambassador say, some of the earliest PEPFAR work under her leadership with Dreams was actually doing an analysis of what was happening in LA. And when I heard the, the, the pivot by the Department of Health and Human Services here in the, municip in the 48 uh, municipalities in Puerto Rico and a, and a handful of others, it's doing exactly what PEPFAR has been doing for the last three years, which is, you know, you don't do the same thing everywhere. It goes back, to, I think, to what Deborah said. One size does not fit all, but some of the guiding principles do. So how do we address mm. stigma? How do we address um, marginalization and criminalization? How do we provide agency? And we need to fill in the blank there for every single population. We will not succeed with the global epidemic, including this one, if we only fix it in Nigeria for sex workers. We've got to fix it everywhere, the, the proverbial no one left behind. And, and I think your question really flags that we need to begin to recognize that no one has all the answers. Um, we, we are seeing programs in this country learning from programs that we think of as recipients of development aid. They're leading and we are following, and, and vice versa. And I think if we created a, a better community of practice that really more quickly generated that experience to know that, wow, we tried this with young women in Zimbabwe, you might want to try an adaptation of that with the trans community in the US South. That's the excitement, I think, that we can really um, help to, to create. 
So we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. I think we could probably stay here for uh, quite a bit longer and, and talk more about these issues. Uh, so let me just ask our, our panelists uh, for your final thoughts uh, and feel free to uh, have them be about anything that you want. But uh, as a framing question, um, you know, recognizing there's no silver bullet as we've discussed, there's no one, one key thing. What would you prioritize as a key change that needs to happen to uh, enable access to HIV technology going forward, whether that's preventative or therapeutic or diagnostic or um, uh, you know, programmatic approach? What is maybe that one thing that comes to mind as, as the thing that really needs to be pushed forward? Deborah? So, um, <clears throat> so you come in to somebody who is leading a pharma company and I guess I'm going to go slightly broader than your question. When I kind of sit and dream about the future, I actually am dreaming of a cure, if I'm completely honest with you. So I know that the science that we're currently um, you know, leading with at the moment, a lot of it is about treatment and prevention, but actually we have a big programming cure. I'm dreaming about putting myself out of business, quite frankly. So I, I, that, is my, that is my dream. That is my hope. That is what I think is where I hope one day we will be, because that will truly, I hope, be the end of the, mm -hmm. uh, the epidemic. So that is, that is the hopeful note on which I am going to end my sort of contribution to this afternoon. <laughs> Perfect. Ambassador Brooks? Policies. I, it, it just all comes down to being able to make our US taxpayer dollars work. And we, so we have to have the policies that work at the national level, that work down to the district and site level. And, we just have to continue to push on that. That has been our, our biggest piece. And I think the reason West and West Central Africa is behind, it's not a resource issue. These are highly resourced countries um, when it comes to HIV, TB, and malaria. It was the fee schedules that kept the poorest from accessing care. The other day, I heard in a series of countries that they were charging for access to Cotrim, a medicine that we provide free. So these are the kinds of things that we have to be on top of every single day because any of those barriers, um, but now many of West and West Central Africa countries and Nigeria down to the state level are not only eliminating formal fees but saying informal fees are illegal. And that will change the access to health care, not only for HIV, but for ANC and immunizations, and we feel really good about that. But this policy piece is going to determine whether we're successful in the end or not. Thank you. Chip? Um, it's that success. Um, I couldn't agree more with the um, ambassadors, it, it, with the ambassador. It's a series of policies, but it, it leads directly to impact. We have to sing for our supper um, every single day. Even the ambassador does because <laughs> she, she's not her own boss on the Hill and so on. We can't assume the staying power of this level of investment, say nothing of being able to make the case for increased investments unless we demonstrate impact. And that's not just on the Hill. Um, uh, that's with a, a range of donors. They don't have the kind of wallet Ambassador Burks has access to. But thank God for Unitaid. Thank God for private foundations. Thank God for those that are willing to risk Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There are a whole bunch that are willing to take risks, are willing to invest in innovations, 
And I don't worry about it, but I've, we feel a big responsibility to deliver on those investments because 35 years is a long time. There is fatigue out there. Some will stand back and say, y'all, Global Fund pledged 14, they got $14 billion. Why could you possibly need other investment? We desperately need uh, other investment to do other things. Um, that's a big responsibility to make the case. Um, and I, I think it's just important. Of course, the elephants, um, um, the investors are the Global Fund and PEPFAR. But a big part of the community that contributes enormously to impact and to innovation and getting other ideas out there um, are those other donors. And they need to be applauded as a p critical partners in the, in the community as well. You know, just as, as two people were talking, I'm struck um, when I look back over the, particularly the last 15 years, the, the architecture that you just articulated with all of those different funders and implementers um, didn't exist um, 15, 18 mm -hmm. years ago. And, and that in and of itself is a huge accomplishment. And, and I, don't, uh, I don't think we celebrate often enough in this field of, of reason not to celebrate many things, but there's, there's a celebration there. Um, a, a couple of just quick thoughts. One, um, I remember early on in, in Peter Piot's tenure in the, in the early 90s, mid 90s, setting up UNAIDS, and he said once to me in a meeting in Lusaka, you know, risk gets such a bad name in this epidemic. And, and it's too bad because sometimes we need to take risk. And obviously, individual risk we're trying to mitigate, but we need to take some big risks. And I think what you're hearing from a number of, of partnerships is that risk-taking mentality in a positive way. Um, and, and then I guess finally, I, I'm struck, um, and maybe just reflecting a bit on, on, on my own career, uh, up until 2011, not only any of us, if we talked about ending the epidemic, it was truly a pipe dream. And things changed, and science allowed it to change because of um, trials around treatment as prevention, viral suppression as prevention that led to U equals U, the early PrEP trials. 2011 was a, 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 the, the point in time when the conversation about ending the epidemic was transformed. And that's a great thing. But ending this epidemic is not a press release. And, and it's not a slogan. And I think for me, when I look to the future, um, my, my big takeaway from all of this is, is never to confuse the progress that we are seeing in real time right now with ultimate success, because we are still a long way from there. And, and I guess finally, that while it is not gonna be easy anywhere for exactly the issues of policies and funding and challenges with stigma, it is not easy anywhere, but it's possible everywhere. We are seeing progress in places that were inconceivable. It's easy to say we have progress in San Francisco. We expect to see progress there. But we're seeing progress in a country like Malawi, where people would have said one of the poorest countries will never, will never do it there. So um, not, not easy anywhere, but possible everywhere, and hopefully possible in more places um, that we need to be monitoring and accounting and making sure we don't slip back because the other piece in all of this, I learned this actually from the ambassador a couple of years ago with the tipping point. Um, we have to be careful not to tip back and, and that is this pivotal moment. We, we've made huge progress, but it is not sustainable yet. We, we, we cannot let it tip back, whether that's about a funding issue, about a delivery issue, about the policies and the science um, is how I, I kind of look at that. Well, thank you to all of you for your contributions today. I think you've given all of us a lot to think about and some really constructive pieces for uh, not only those in the room, but those as part of the broader HIV community to be picking up the mantle and, and running with. So thank you to all of you who joined in person today. And it looks like it's pouring behind <laughs> you. So please stay dry. Uh, and uh, please watch this space, as I mentioned at the start. 
We will be hosting a big conference in early February um, to discuss strategy for ending HIV 2020 and beyond and launching our new documentary, which Steve mentioned. Um, so we, we looked forward to seeing all of you then. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Good work. Good work.